Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from September 2014, Dr. Ursula Madalonis, Dr. Susanna Campos, and Dr. Panos Konstantinopoulos discuss the latest treatment options for ovarian cancer, as well as answer questions about side effects and new clinical trials. Dr. Madalonis is a medical oncologist and the medical director for the Gynecologic Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. Both Dr. Campos and Dr. Konstantinopoulos are also medical oncologists with the Gynecologic Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get things going. Um, question number one, so these are actually questions that have been sent in by you, the audience, and we're going to go through them one by one, and then we got a few uh, extras this morning. So number one, Dr. Campos, um, the question is, is there more than one type or subtypes of ovarian cancer, and are all ovarian cancer, cancers treated the same way? Now, I think that's a, an excellent question. There are many types of ovarian cancer, and we traditionally categorize them into a, serous, a high-grade serous carcinoma or serous carcinoma, endometroid, mucinous, and clear cell. But over the course of the last several years, what we've identified is even within the serous adenocarcinoma that we're subdividing, we're partitioning out the high-grade and the low-grade. And the question is that's quite important because we're starting to understand some molecular alterations that might guide us in terms of treatments individually. I think it's a very good question, one that we kind of still struggle with in some subtypes of ovarian cancer. Traditionally, they're still treated with platinum and taxanes, but there's been some research, specifically in the mucinous type of ovarian cancer, as to whether or not we really should be adhering to the carboplatinum and taxol, or perhaps employing a GI regimen. So there's a nice ongoing clinical study that I think recently just closed that may shed some light into the equation. So Yeah, that's good. And I, I'm going I'm to let panelists chime in here, but, too, I, but I think it's really important that the audience understand that, um, you know, I think in ovarian cancer, we really need to do a better job of, of improving how we're treating women. And one of the, I think, very exciting next steps in clinical trial development has been exactly what Sue just said, sub-splitting out the different histologic subtypes of ovarian cancer. You would never think about treating breast cancer in one way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just doesn't make sense that in ovary cancer that we would think about it as just one cancer. So certainly... As Sue mentioned, high-grade serous ovarian cancer, most common type of ovary cancer we treat with platinum. Um, Panos, do you have any, any thoughts about, uh, about high-grade serous? It's, it's a, certainly an area of, of a laboratory interest to Panos. Yes. So it, high-grade serous cancer is a very heterogeneous uh, type of cancers. We now know uh, there have been a lot of analysis, both in terms of the DNA, the protein, uh, and the RNA of these tumors, and we know that there are uh, different subtypes of this high-grade serous. So there are tumors that may have, uh, uh, 50% of them actually have uh, defects in a DNA repair pathway called homologous recombination, uh, which genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2 are involved. Uh, this, there is another 20% of tumors that actually have um, uh, a specific alteration called cyclin E amplification. These tumors uh, usually don't respond so well to platinum uh, chemotherapy, and we, we, we're trying to figure out other approaches that we can target them. Uh, there is another 
two to three percent of tumors that have uh, mismatch, repair, defects. Uh, so we're trying to understand, as Sue and Ursula mentioned, these tumors better so that we could potentially uh, treat them in an individual manner. And I, I have to say here that here at Dana-Farber, we have embarked in this initiative and we try for every patient who's coming in our institution uh, to, um, uh, you know, uh, genotype their tumor for uh, 275 different genes and uh, get an individual report so that we could potentially uh, identify for each patient uh, the uh, uh, appropriate treatments, streamline them into appropriate clinical trials uh, that we could uh, offer them what we call the personalized treatment for each patient and for each patient tumor. Great. Yeah, that's great. More to come on that. Um, Sue, I was recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I'm trying to wrap my head about around the terminology. Wrap my head around the terminology. Actually, around all the terminology. Can you explain what the CA125 number is? and why doctors track it. The CA125 is, is a protein antigen on, on a tumor, and it's a specific, specific in ovarian cancer. However, it can actually be elevated in, say, for example, certain types of uterine cancer. But it is a marker, a serum, a serum protein that we actually measure at the time of diagnosis. In some cases, the tumor marker is elevated in individuals with ovarian cancer. More often than not, it is. But there are times when individuals can have ovarian cancer, and that CA125 is normal. I think it's important to know that that level is never zero. In a normal individual, uh, an individual without a malignancy, say, it's somewhere between zero and 35. But it is a tool, a tracking device. So if elevated at the beginning of treatment, we track it every single time the individual comes in for chemotherapy. And what we hope is that we see a nice decline in that CA125. I think, you know, I think we all agree that we spend a lot of time talking about the CA125 and that it is a test that is not a good screening test. And I know there's many questions out there, why not use this as a screening tool? It is quite nonspecific and, and nonsensitive. For example, individuals who, um, you know, young women who are menstruating, pregnant, a urinary tract infection, uh, any kind of pelvic inflammation can cause that increase in CA125. And I think it's important to note, as individuals, as we're tracking that CA125, they could be a little bit blurb. And so we often counsel patients not to get too apprehensive if it goes up or down by a couple of points, but it's simply the trend of the CA125. But the hope is indeed that that marker normalizes at the conclusion of therapy. So it is basically a tracking device. Yeah, yeah. No, no, a very good point. And I think, you know, I think as we're, as we're talking today, um, I think all of us are gonna, we're going to talk about you know, a little bit about screening, although I wish we had better screening tests, um, but also new therapeutics and the, and the, the MUC, MUC16 protein that's stuck onto ovarian cancer cells, that, that shed um, moiety is the CA5. And now we actually have medications and drugs um, that are targeting that MUC16 right. prior to being shedded from the SN5. So, Sue, that's, that's perfect. Thank you. Panos, what other biomarkers are used by Dana-Farber for ovarian cancer progression besides CA125? So uh, the, the majority of the time, as Sue mentioned, if the CA135 is elevated, mm -hmm. this is a tumor marker, this is the biomarker, the blood marker that we use. Uh, there are occasions where we could, uh, for certain types of ovarian cancer, like the mucinous type, where we could follow other, uh, yeah. other biomarkers like the CA, which is the carcinoembryonic antigen, or the CA199, which is the cancer antigen 199. There's another assay uh, called HC4, uh, which 
uh, has been FDA approved actually for following uh, progress uh, to, to track progression of, of disease, but this is not uh, used very frequently. But there are many occasions where there is actually no blood uh, biomarker that's elevated in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in patients with ovarian cancer, and then in that situation we have to follow them with uh, uh, imaging studies like CAT scan or sometimes, yeah. depending on the scenarios, PET scans. Yeah. Uh, so this is how we... Yeah. So I think I think HE4 is is probably what this individual is driving at. I think I don't I don't use it. Do you use yeah. it too? No. You know this. Um, there's uh, you know there's indications in terms of when an individual presents with an ovarian mass, and sometimes that's used complex with the yeah. CA125 to try to help right. the surgeon. Could this be malignant or non-malignant? Um, I think different institutions use it differently. We haven't here used it. Use it too much. Use it too yeah. much. Usually, if the CA125 will dictate. Yeah, we'll tell yeah, the story. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and obviously, for women who have granulosa cell tumors, we use right. inhibin A and B. Right. So that's, that's the other biomarker point. we use. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Panos, um, this is a biggie. Um, what are areas, and I'm going to, this is directed towards Panos, but I'm obviously going to let Sue chime in too. Um, what are areas researchers are focusing on the most with regards to ovarian cancer treatment? So, uh, I think that. Uh, the, the biggest area of uh, investigation right now about uh, in ovarian cancer is try to understand the different uh, molecular pathways that are involved that drive uh, carcinogenesis, ovarian cancer, uh, ovarian carcinogenesis. Because if we understand the different pathways, then we could potentially develop therapies that we could target these pathways. So uh, there is a lot of excitement right now about targeting um, uh, DNA damage uh, repair pathways. So many times ovarian cancers uh, have, uh, are defective in terms of their ability to uh, uh, repair DNA. So we have drugs that are actually uh, are directed against this uh, DNA repair uh, pathways. Uh, for example, one of these drugs are PARP inhibitors that, that we use. Uh, there are other, um, uh, there's a lot of research on various signaling pathways that are frequently activated in ovarian cancer. For example, the MAP kinase pathway, the PI3K pathway, and we actually have a lot of clinical trials in our institution that target these particular pathways. Uh, there is a lot of uh, excitement about uh, targeting um, a blood uh, anti angiogenesis, which is uh, tumors forming new blood vessels. Um, and so we have a lot of drugs that are targeting uh, new blood vessel formation. Uh, there are a lot of drugs, novel drug, and a lot of research that uh, is targeting uh, cellular proliferation, uh, p53 mutations, which are also uh, commonly um, expressed uh, in, in, in ovarian cancer, particularly the high-grade serous ovarian cancer, which 100% is associated with p53 mutations. So, uh, I think the biggest uh, area of, of uh, research right now is, again, understanding that not all ovarian cancers are uh, created equal and that there are several different pathways that are being uh, driving uh, uh, this disease, uh, these different diseases, and that we should treat uh, these different diseases based on the particular molecular pathway that's been uh, responsible uh, uh, right. in these cases. I think that's a, that's a good lead-in into the fact that, you know, ovarian cancer is not necessarily a, a one-mutation type of a cancer like... Uh, uh, EGFR mutation lung cancer or uh, even uh, overexpressing cancer or uh, like HER2 breast cancer. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, our, our group has really taken the, the premise that, you know, maybe we should start targeting 
various pathways. Right. Um, so uh, Sue Campos has run two trials now that actually have combined drugs of different pathways, specifically of, of anti-angiogenic drugs, um, an EGFR inhibitor uh, plus an anti-angiogenic plus a, plus a uh, PI3 kinase uh, inhibition. Um, and that's definitely been a theme that, that our group has, has uh, has really started to study. Do you want to do you want to yeah, chat about and those? I, you know, I, these are the studies that are that we have done. I think what I've gotten even more interested in the last is, you know, we can find these mutations, but what are the the mutations that actually drive the cancer right. pathway? Right. And we've spent a lot of time, and patients have been amazing in terms of participating in these cl clinical trials, in terms of clinical trials with drugs that block new blood vessel formation. And so we're at a point where we see people responding brilliantly, and that we have a, we're at a point where we don't see people responding. So the question really is, I know you've done a lot of work with the, uh, the signature, the angiogenic signature. Who are these individuals that indeed do respond? So we can give the drug to the individuals that do, but perhaps save some collateral toxicity. Right. I, I, mean, I was interested in the American Society Clinical oncology meetings this year where there was two very important abstracts presented in terms of um, you know individuals who got this drug called bevacizumab but who could, who are those individuals that did respond maybe responded better responded poorly so yeah. I thought that was yeah. intriguing yeah. at ASCO this year Absolutely. yeah yeah I yeah, know I think there's a lot going on about you know we have all these different medications although we we need more targeted therapies in right. early cancer but but bevacizumab is the one that's been studied a lot but you know, it has toxicities. Right. Um, you want to choose our patients carefully who, um, who, who go on the trials and receive that drug. Um, okay, Sue, can't, Dr. Campos, are there any treatments available that are easier on the body than standard chemotherapy? You know, there are different types of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy has notoriously side effects, and we try to try to really try to finesse the side effects using supportive elements, sometimes even utilizing chemotherapy in a different fashion. We've started to use chemotherapy instead of an every three-week session, perhaps a weekly session. Patients have responded in some cases, not all granted, but in a very, very nice light. Good. Um, Panos, there are a couple questions about uh, specifically PARP inhibitors. Um, and updating the audience again quickly as we can, um, and then also about immunotherapy. We have very, very good evidence that the immune system plays a very important role in controlling malignant progression uh, in ovarian cancer. Actually, about 12, 10, 10, 12 years ago, uh, investigators saw that if you look at patients' tumors, if these tumors included specific uh, uh, lymphocyte-specific immune cells that are actually could potentially kill the tumor, these patients actually did better, this tumor, uh, these patients live longer. So there is no question that the immune system plays an important role uh, and, uh, in, in ovarian cancer progression. The question is how can we harness the, the immune system? So there have been a lot of approaches in terms of trying to stimulate the immune system to attack the tumor. And for example, there have been vaccine approaches, there have been approaches uh, that target, for example, that try to target the, uh, the immune system against the CA135 protein that's been produced, but this approach is so far have not really uh, uh, produced uh, very good results. However, recently we're very, very excited about uh, these drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors, which as Ursula mentioned, uh, in, they have been now FDA approved in, in, uh, in diseases like melanoma. Th these drugs are like pembrolizumab or ipilimumab. And these drugs, what they do is that there is this theory that uh, the, the tumor cells are actually put a break in the immune system that's not allowing the immune system to fight the tumor. And what these drugs do is they release the break 
break so that the immune system can fight back the tumor. So we're very excited about these immune checkpoint inhibitors, and there are now clinical trials in our institution where we giving this, we're we, we asking the question whether these drugs, which have had such a great activity against in other tumors like melanomas, renal cell cancers, whether we can see similar activity in, in ovarian cancer. And that's, that's actually a work in progress right yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to come back to you on that. <clears throat> uh, Sue. A, a big question. Are there mechanisms yet uh, to reverse platinum-resistant cancer? And, um, you know, what ways have been attempted to try to reverse that platinum resistance, resistance yeah. and, and kind of make the cells, once again, platinum-sensitive? Yes, and that is actually a very, very important area in terms of clinical research that, I mean, there are certain um, in BRCA mutation carriers that can be reverse mutations that can make patients, again, susceptible to a certain uh, chemotherapeutic agents. I mean, this is your really your specialty, so. Yeah, so, uh, so essentially, as Sue mentioned, so this is uh, one of the way that this happens uh, to revert uh, uh, is that uh, tumors may have BRCA mutations, which, which cause DNA repair defects, and they're platinum sensitive, and then this DNA repair uh, is, is reverted and actually can, uh, uh, and that can lead to uh, a, a platinum resistance. So attacking this DNA repair uh, mechanism and their clinical trials that we have now using ATR inhibitor or NTM inhibitors, which are through our phase one program, we could potentially reinstitute clinical trial, uh, I'm sorry, platinum sensitivity. Ursula actually recently ran a clinical trial of a, a drug called SGI110 in combination with carboplatin that was actually a, an agent that could potentially uh, re reverse, platinum uh, reverse platinum resistance, and we, 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 we're waiting to see what the results of this study are. So, but the, the most important thing here is to understand how platinum resistance occurs, and there are multiple m different mechanisms that platinum resistance occurs, and in this situation, we should target those mechanisms so that we could potentially revert yeah. that. The other thing is that even if a tumor becomes platinum resistant, that doesn't mean that there may be other yeah. drugs that we That's can right. use, and we have yeah. clinical trials that we will be talking about that could potentially be, uh, be used for platinum resistant yeah. tumors. Right. And certainly, we have a, a new fellow who's joined our group, Elizabeth Stover, who... Um, who works in Levi Garraway's lab here, who's going to work on platinum resistance and trying to reverse it. So um, it's great to have great a, a targeted MD-PhD working on that. Um, these are, this is a quickie. I'm going to answer this one because it's easy. Uh, is there a connection between ovarian cancer and HPV? answer is no. Um, HPV uh, causes cervical cancer and, um, and head and neck cancers. Um, Sue, uh, when is the best time to consider a clinical trial? If you join a clinical trial right away, does that mean you may be using drugs you cannot use again in the future? Sure. That is an excellent question. And, and in clinical trials, I think at every interaction with your clinician as you choose and, and to, as a team, you know, delegate your therapy, you should ask the question, is there a clinical trial for which I am eligible for? Um, oftentimes we have clinical trials more in the recurrent setting. There are phase one, there are phase two, and certainly phase three clinical trials. So let's give you an example in the recurrent setting. Um, and you should always ask the question, what do I have at my disposal? Standard therapies, there are numerous standard therapies, and, there are all, and what clinical trials could I utilize at this time? It's about organizing and tailoring the therapy to the individual so that at the end of the day, as this disease, we treat this disease, you always have as many options as you possibly can. So I said every encounter, when you're about to change therapy, ask 
the questions, do I, am I eligible for a clinical trial? And there'll be times when a standard therapy is more practical, and there'll be times when a clinical trial should actually be considered. So it's quite important. As you pick a clinical trial, it's not that it eliminates certain things, but there are there is a notion that they have eligibility criteria for a clinical trial, so oftentimes they'll say cannot have more than two or three prior lines. So this is a very, very important to work with your clinician and say, how do I position my choices so that I have more choices as years pass? So right. That's a really good point. Because some of the clinical trials we have open um, are are very early on um, right. in, in the treatment of ovarian cancer. Um, yet some other trials, you can re have received a number of different different right. lines of therapy. Um, and what Panos was referring to before is our oncoprofile or our profile mapping um, that we do on all um, patients who walk into the native fiber really can, can give us some new hints or clues about what potential clinical trials are available, if there's a AKT mutation or a PI3 kinase mutation. So it gives us a lot of information. Sue, another question for you. Uh, for someone who's diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer, what is the chance of recurrence, and what is the chance after five years? Yeah. So, you know, when you think about ovarian cancer, you th we often talk about, you know, uh, epithelial ovarian cancer, which is 90% of the ovarian cancer. So a stage one, <coughs> overall, a stage one five-year survival rate, if you were to Google it, is 90%. And I think it's important if, if, if it wants, wants to be specific to look at different types of stage one. So you have stage 1A, stage 1B, and stage 1C. Take, for example, a stage 1C. Uh, according to the literature that exists recently, it's about 85% five-year survival rate. Now, let's talk about different types of ovarian cancers, like stromal type of tumors, where a stage one is a 95% five-year yeah. survival. So, you know, when you, we talk about, we always measure in five years, and is this, there a magic of five years, a line in the sand? It tells us about the biology of the disease. Uh, I don't, I think it's very hard to give statistics after five years, um, but obviously if people haven't recurred in the five years, the, the likelihood of them recurring in stage one is quite low, and it's quite reassuring. Yeah, so. that's great. Um, Panos, uh, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Uh, it was genetically tested, but results did not show uh, BRCA1 or 2 mutations, so she was BRCA1, 2 negative. Are there other genes that could cause ovarian cancer? Certainly a very appropriate question given the New England Journal PALB2 uh, story in breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So, uh, absolutely, there are other genes that are involved besides, although the, the majority, 90% 90 of familial hereditary ovarian cancer is caused actually by BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, there are other genes that have been involved in, ovarian in hereditary ovarian cancer. For example, there are the mismatch repair uh, genes that are involved in the so-called Lynch syndrome, which causes familial clustering of tumors like colon cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer. These genes include MSH2, uh, MLH1, and MSH6, and sometimes PMS2. Um, uh, so there, there are also some uh, data about uh, rarely some genes called uh, two genes called RAD51C and RAD51D that have been shown in some ovarian cancer families. Uh, Ursula mentioned the PALB2 story, which has been uh, found to be associated with in patients with breast cancer. In our institution here, we have this uh, next generation uh, sequencing platform that is looking uh, 25 uh, different familial cancer uh, genes. Uh, so every patient who we refer here to. Uh, 
uh, for genetic counseling, they talk to them about this media uh, 25 gene panel uh, testing that, uh, uh, that includes all these genes that I mentioned, the mismatch repair genes, as well as the RAD51C, RAD51D, PALB2 that uh, Ursula mentioned, and of course BRCA1 and BRCA2. So we get a comprehensive uh, uh, question, uh, uh, answer about whether those genes may be involved. And I want to mention also that in many cases, even when there is a familial, uh, there are families that have a lot of ovarian cancer, uh, we're not able to find a gene. And that doesn't mean that there is no hereditary predisposition. It may very well be uh, a gene that we don't know about, that we haven't figured out, we haven't, uh, uh, so, and there may well be a, a hereditary predisposition even in that case that we are not able to, uh, to find. So even if a test is negative, particularly in the setting of a, a positive family history, that should not definitely uh, give us the false reassurement that this, there is nothing going on. So this patient should follow their, with their genetic uh, counselor and discuss ways to, uh, uh, you know, pot potentially uh, uh, prevent and screen for, th for this disease. Good. Sue, um, what options do ovarian cancer patients have if they have refractory ovarian cancer? And you might want to define for the audience what that means, refractory ovarian cancer, and how successful are these options? Understood. There are, there are considerable uh, choices to actually be had. We often think of refractory as, uh, as individuals who progress while they're on their induction therapy of a platinum and taxing. Other people define it within three months after completing therapy. I suspect that maybe in that question is also the concept of resistance disease, which is if an individual progresses less than six months after finishing their carboplatinum and taxane, they're considered resistant. So refractory and resistance. So there are standard options, clearly, and there's liposomal anthracycline, there's topotecan, um, you know, there's uh, CPT. There are many standard therapies. But this really is the, the, the category of individuals that really should be seeking clinical trials, whether they be in phase two clinical trials, whether they be in, um, in, in phase one clinical trials. I think one of the studies that I think has been so illuminating in the last several, uh, in the last year has been a study called the Aurelia trial, which I think we're going to start to learn a little bit more about. And in this particular trial, patients were treated with bevacizumab, which is a vastin, and chemotherapy. But in that cohort of individuals, bevacizumab and Taxol really outperformed, that combination really outperformed Taxol. And these were, in essence, in patients who had, uh, although we defined them as resistant, if you go back into the study, they're almost refractory because they're within mm -hmm. the three-month period. So there are many options, but individuals who find themselves in that situation should ask the question again, standard therapies, and what are the clinical trials? So yeah. they really can really you know, explore what's out there for them. So there are options, and people shouldn't feel as though their back is against the wall because there clearly are options, yeah. Right, right. Do you want to mention the cycling E story in those pa patients with platinum refractory? Yeah, so some patients, uh, we, we start to know that some of these patients who have platinum refractory disease actually have this cycling E amplification. It's 20% of the patients. And uh, we, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out ways, and there are some phase one clinical trials that we have in our institution that target these particular uh, patients uh, and, uh, 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 who have this, uh, this, uh, this uh, alteration and have this platinum resistant and platinum refractory disease. Yeah. Great. Uh, we have a lot of questions. So, um, uh, okay. So, Panos, I'm going to ask you the question, uh, and this is more along the PARP inhibitors, because I asked you about immunotherapy, PARP inhibitors. You did a great answer on immunotherapy, but I want us to have you speak specifically about PARP inhibitors, but also your work on HSP90. So, the question is, um, are there drugs that have been found to have a significantly different effect for BRCA positive versus BRCA negative 
patients? So uh, patients who have a BRCA mutation, who are BRCA positive as we call them, uh, they have a defect in a specific DNA repair pathway called homologous recombination. So they, in other words, they cannot repair DNA damage well. So there are specific drugs that actually cause DNA damage that these tumors cannot repair. And these drugs are PARP inhibitors, so uh, that's one example. Uh, other drugs are platinum. Actually, platinum is a drug that, that causes uh, DNA damage that is repaired by uh, 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 homologous recombination. So doxyl is another drug that could potentially... So these drugs uh, seem to uh, have a very, very good response, particularly in patients who, who have BRCA mutation. That doesn't mean that these drugs do not work also well in patients who are BRCA negative, but they seem to work very, very well in patients who are uh, BRCA positive. There are also some other drugs that, we, uh, that are being found in the laboratory. For example, there's a phase one study of uh, this drug called sapocytabine, which is a nucleoside analog we have in our institution that seems to work very well in patients who, uh, who do have uh, this uh, BRCA, BRCA mutation. So uh, it's important also to underscore that there are other ovarian cancers that, despite the fact that they don't have BRCA mutations, they may also have defective homologous recombination, and they still may respond very well to PARP inhibitors, to platinum, to doxyl, and all these drugs. So um, uh, even if you're BRCA negative, does not mean that you may not respond to drugs that we know work very well in BRCA positive patients. And it's actually one of the challenges in ovarian cancer research to try and identify which are these patients who, despite the fact that they don't have a BRCA mutation, may actually respond very well to these drugs. I mean, Dr. Liu's study that she presented, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, really did highlight that. You know, our colleague um, utilized two drugs, sidereneb and olaparib versus olaparib. And interestingly enough, even the BRCA-negative mutation mm -hmm. individuals responded brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, better. better, right. better. So yeah. Yeah. getting to your point, absolutely. Absolutely. Sue, hot off the wire, can you comment on ways that women can prevent ovarian cancer? Ways to, wait to prevent ovarian cancer, listen to your body, communicate your symptoms. And I know we take a history every time an individual comes in, and we oftentimes, uh, patients are very quite distraught because they've had symptoms that they think have lasted for a little longer than they should. Now, the symptoms are, in essence, symptoms that are very un not unique to women. I mean, in terms of abdominal bloating, early, uh, early satiety, these things can happen in women all the time. But if there is a constellation of symptoms, a grouping of symptoms, present them to your physician. You know, address the question. Even though ovarian cancer is not as common as breast cancer, it does occur. And present them to your individual and ask the question, should I have an ultrasound? Should I have a gynecological examination? A CA-125 may not, is not the answer at all times. I think one of the key factors, especially when talking to your primary care physician, is to be very, very concrete with your family history. At times, this really clues in a clinician as to the fact this may be an individual from Eastern European descent, what have you, that may be more likely to have ovarian cancer. So taking time to have a detailed ovarian uh, uh, history, family history is important. There is literature also in terms of the, uh, the oral contraceptives, and mm -hmm. we've learned this over the years, that oral contraceptives can decrease the risk of ovarian cancers. Women have to be mindful, they also have side effects, so talk very cautiously with your, 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 your clinician. Right. Sue, also a question from Andy, out of the wire. What are some promising therapies for clear cell cancers 
which are usually resistant to chemotherapy. Yeah, absolutely. This has been uh, one of our thorns, uh, thorns on our side. It's been the clear cell histology, that fourth histology we talked about. Um, actually, we have colleagues here and, and at MGH also that are working very closely with clear cell um, and actually looking into anti-angiogenic therapeutics for clear cell carcinoma of the ovary. So that still is there. And again, molecularly profiling these tumors allows us to understand yeah. what genetic aberrations exist and, and that is really the launching pad to maybe a particular trial, whether it be angiogenesis inhibitors or other inhibitors that, you know, that fit mutations that we find. Yeah, I think, you know, the, our, uncle, our uncle panel has Absolutely. been, to me, really important yeah. for Absolutely. clear cell cancers. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably more often than not will find PIK3CA mutations. Yeah, exactly. 25%. Um, yeah. and Especially actually, clear cell, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those women who show resistance to, to platinum, yeah. um, I, don't, I tend not to uh, go right to doxel or another chemotherapy, no. yeah. but try to get them Absolutely. onto a clinical, onto a clinical trial. trial. So, yeah. uh, Panos, any thoughts about I, I think that big, big, big 3CA mutations are 25% uh, of these clear cell tumors, and right. I think that's, that's great. We, we, uh, we're trying to understand clear cell ovarian cancer from a molecular standpoint better now. We, there is this RID1A mutations that about 50% of these patients have, and we're trying to find specific vulnerabilities that these patients have. So I think that uh, there's more definitely to come, but in the meantime, I think antiogenic agents, as Sue mentioned, and PIK3CA, uh, PI3K pathway targeted approaches are, are, are the best uh, um, ways to, to proceed at this point. Yeah, and I think, again, anecdotally, that the women who respond to agents that, uh, you know, involve the PI3 kinase pathway that I've seen have the best responses to have been clear cell cancer. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think and it's... there's a lot of preclinical um, work suggesting that. Yeah, so exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, Sue, a question about nutrition. Um, can you speak about the role of nutrition in cancer development? Whoa. Um, and how to eat after treatment to minimize the risk of recurrence? And this is a question that comes up all the time in our, in our, uh, in our clinical visits. Um, nutrition, the effect of nutrition remains a little bit vague, but if you look in the literature, there are some kind of bullet points that I think um, we can share with individuals. Uh, there are you know, some studies suggesting low decrease in your intake of meat, especially red meat. There is, um, there is some literature regarding the risk of milk and perhaps the hormones that exist in milk. That's been a theory that's been out there for some time. I think the theory that stands now is that you know, a, a person who actually has a diet that's rich in vegetables, fruits, grains, complex grains, um, actually could, uh, this could be beneficial to a patient with ovarian cancer. I, I always try to tell my patients, you're just not a, an individual that has ovarian cancer. You're an individual that has to maintain her heart, her lung, her liver, her colon. So it's important just to have a diet that you know, substantiates that. So I always think that a protein-based diet, complex carbohydrates, minimizing sugar intake doesn't mean you can't have your cake if you want it sometimes. But being very mindful, it's just not about the issue of ovarian cancer. It's you as an individual, as a whole individual. Yeah. yeah. And Sue, another question for you. Um, what, um, what are some of the symptoms of ovarian cancer recurrence? Um, would it just be an elevated CA-125, or are there other signs I should be looking for? I mean, that's a very important question. It becomes very fear people become very fearful after undergoing, taking the investment in chemotherapy. Oftentimes, if the marker was elevated to begin with, 
we will know before you have a symptom. It will be a rising CA125. Let me just mention the fact that if the CA125 goes up one month, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue to go up, so it's the, it's the trend of the marker that we follow. There are times where individuals will present to us with either, you know, increasing abdominal distension. Oftentimes we hear about changes in bowel habits, mm -hmm. early satiety, mm -hmm. they get full very easily, perhaps shortness of breath. Um, it can be a little bit of everything. We always tell people, understand how you feel now. If you have a symptom, just present it. Let us decipher it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I think that's, that's smart. I think, you know, just listening to your body and us listening to patient symptoms, we, you know, we really pick up a lot just a lot, by, yeah. just by talking um, and sometimes physical exam doesn't always you know, sort of clue you into no. what's going on. Um, Panos, an important question on can you discuss neuroendocrine ovarian cancer? And I'm actually put in there small cell ovarian yeah. cancer. Uh -huh. What's currently known about this disease and its treatment? Um, is there such a thing as neuroendocrine ovarian cancer of the GI type? If so, what does it mean? So Neuroendocrine tumors are rare tumors. Uh, they're only 1 or 2% of, of ovarian cancers. And they're usually, the most common ones are the small cells, which are the high-grade um, neuroendocrine tumors, which are usually, uh, there are two types. Uh, the, the small cell hypercalcemic type, which is associated actually with high uh, elevated calcium levels. There's been actually some genetic um, uh, discovery that shows that there is a specific gene that's mutated for these tumors. Uh, these tumors usually uh, involve women who are are uh, in their early age, usually age of 20 to 40. Usually, it's it's they are quite aggressive tumors. They uh, they tend to present uh, not only in the ovary, but they present with metastatic disease in other places uh, very very early. And uh, usually, we, we we follow the same principles uh, in terms of management of these tumors with surgery if we can uh, do surgery, and and after surgery, obviously uh, uh, chemotherapy. We use specific regimen, not exactly the, the same similar regimen as we use for the regular ovarian cancer, but uh, similar regimens. Um, these are the, the small cell uh, cancers, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the neuroendocrine tumors, but there are these uh, low-grade neuroendocrine tumors, the so-called carcinoids. Uh, I don't know what this patient is referring to. Usually there can be uh, primary ovarian mucinous carcino carcinoids, which are look like GI tumors, uh, or they can be uh, carcinoids that are metastatic to the ovary from, uh, uh, originated from the GI tract, like from colon or the appendix. F frequently, there can be an appendiceal primary carcinoid that has spread to, to the ovary or a small bowel carcinoid that has spread to the ovary. These are tumors that are low-grade. They're not like the small cell uh, neuroendocrine high-grade tumors. We actually have a special clinic here at NF-Farber for uh, these carcinoid tumors that we, we, we send, and, uh, and they have a, a special management, uh, which usually, uh, depending on their presentation, uh, they, they can involve either um, uh, local approaches, for example, uh, 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 radiofrequency ablation, depending if they involve the liver, or uh, you know, systemic therapy, like there are drugs like octreotide that can be used in that case. Uh, these tumors, uh, the low-grade carcinoid tumors, can be associated also with the so-called carcinoid syndrome because they produce certain substances that can cause uh, 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 various uh, types of, uh, of reactions. So um, uh, it's, it's a very, very big uh, umbrella of uh, different uh, rare tumors that, yeah. that, uh, that uh, need specialized treatment uh, clearly. So, um, yes, I agree. So, I, you know, I also wanted to follow up on this, um, the small cell, uh, because it's a very rare variant. Um, and Sue, so do you have any comments on small cells? I mean, I think we've all, 
seen we women, have typically very young women yes um, with the kind of the hypercalcemic small cell cancer type um, what what are your thoughts about how best to manage yeah, those women it's to know what all options are available I think it's fair to say that we have had a handful of individuals with small cell um, and they are difficult malignancies they mm -hmm. can be aggressive so understanding what they are at time zero is important and putting off fielders you know you know obviously we're going to treat these individuals with with the conventional therapeutics yes we're going to profile them molecularly yep. but also know that I mean we've gotten to a point I know in the past you know decade that we've worked you know that even high dose chemotherapy yep. has been brought yep. into the occasion Absolutely. So it's understanding what it is, what it can do, and picking your team very early in, in the upfront. Yeah, the no, up I, front. I would yeah. agree, and I've certainly um, have just because of the you know the truly aggressiveness of these yeah. cancers thought about um, high dose chemotherapy exactly. and, and kind of autologous exactly. bone marrow transplantation, exactly. yeah. um, which is really the the only time that I've ever thought about that. Indeed, in, in yes, cancer. yes, yeah, yeah. no, true. Um, Panos, do you want to sp speak about the molecular alterations that have been found recently in small cell cancer? So there, there was a, a, a gene called SMARCA4 uh, that has been found to be uh, associated in about uh, in, in the majority of, of, of patients with small cell, uh, small cell uh, cancer of the ovary of the hypercalcemic type. And they're also both somatic. Uh, which means acquired mutations, but they're also germline, so they're families. Actually, this, this tumor, the small cell uh, uh, ovarian cancer of the hypercalcemic type, sometimes can run into certain families. And there are germline mutations, so uh, inherited mutations, genetic alterations of this particular gene that can run into families, and uh, obviously uh, that has important implications. So, uh, but as Ursula and Sue mentioned, I, I think that these this are very, very aggressive tumors, yeah. and uh, obviously knowing this is a very very recent discovery, knowing um, this new gene, and we, we could potentially try to identify uh, specific vulnerabilities uh, of, of these tumors that, so that we could potentially identify uh, therapies that go be beyond the chemotherapies that have been mentioned. Right. And I think it's important to know that if someone's diagnosed with a rare tumor, unfortunately there are times where people feel, is there a clinical trial for me? You know, it's so rare. Is there active research going on? And there right. actually is. And even national organizations such as NRG is, has a rare tumor committee that takes these tumors that are rare and really tries to dive into them and try to answer some, some questions with different chemotherapeutic agents yep. or in molecularly defined uh, situations. So yeah. um, even though you have a rare tumor, it's not that people are not interested. Yeah. And I think now more than ever, uh, there's been better collaboration um, and cross-referencing with you know folks like us who see women with ovarian cancer, right. um, uh, translational uh, scientists as well as basic scientists. So um, the, the speed of the technology has really increased. The price of uh, examining genes has has dropped, mm -hmm. um, and we're definitely getting more information. So I think it's a I think it's a really exciting time. Um, I'm just going to go through these questions. Um, I think, so Panos, this is a question that I, I'm not exactly sure what it means, um, but I'm going to ask it because it's on our list. Is there any research that is helping us pinpoint or reasonably estimate when the onset of the cancer was? And I'm actually going to expand that question to, to another sort of realm, is where the onset of, of where the onset of the cancer was, yep. uh, given what we've learned in the next past few years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's it's so there is to, uh, this is a great question that Ursula actually uh, expanded. Uh, so we have, uh, as, as Sue initially mentioned, uh, there are different types of ovarian cancer. There is the so-called high-grade ovarian cancer, high-grade serous ovarian cancer, and this uh, tumor, uh, we now have some evidence that it 
may actually originate not necessarily in the ovarian uh, tissue, but actually in the fallopian tube tissue, so in the, in the fallopian tube. And usually uh, there is a, a very uh, clear uh, um, uh, precursor lesion that's called serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma, which is present in the fallopian tube. And usually this tumor spreads uh, uh, inside uh, the abdomen uh, to the ovary and elsewhere. Uh, so this case, usually these tumors tend to spread quite fast, so uh, it's, it, we cannot clearly say how long it, 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 it took. In many cases, it, it could be actually uh, a, a few months that this may, may happen. So it's, it's very, very important to try and identify these precursor lesions, uh, but we, we, we're not ready to, to do that yet. There are also, the other types of ovarian cancer, the so-called low-grade serous ovarian cancers, uh, which usually uh, have a, a good precursor lesions that are the, these are the borderline uh, ovarian, uh, ovarian uh, 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 alterations, and this, these tumors usually have a, 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 a longer period of, of, of progression and, lower, and, and longer period of how they, they develop. So uh, to answer that question, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the, how long this ovarian cancer has been is, is depends on the type of ovarian cancer. Uh, it depends on where it originated from. So it's 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 not easy. And I know many many women ask the question: How long did I have it inside? How uh, why didn't I pick it up? Why did my primary care physician pick it up. And I have to say that in many cases, it's just the nature of this disease that it just spreads so quickly and it's, it's automatically pre people present with advanced disease even at, at a very, very early, uh, uh, very, very quickly. And uh, uh, that's, that's unfortunately how, how it is. And it's really nobody's fault. Nobody, no physician's fault or no patient's fault. It's just how these tumors sometimes, sometimes, sometimes behave. Uh, so we have time for one more question, and then we're gonna then we're gonna wrap up because I want to hear what everyone's really excited about in ovarian cancer field. But Sue, the last question, um, and I and I think I know what this this question is: um, Can tumor freezing treatment be used in ovarian cancer or other cancers in the pelvic area? Is it successful? And I'm actually gonna I'm gonna rephrase this question because I think this is what that means: Is that if somebody has a an isolated Correct. recurrence? Um, is it possible to do to treat that isolated recurrence with something besides chemotherapy, besides surgery? Absolutely, and these are these are you know a few cases, but they do exist. So if an individual recurs and there is an isolated lesion, we often look to a multidisciplinary approach. We reach out to our surgical colleagues and ask the question: Can these be resected? Number one, we reach out to our radiation oncology uh, colleagues: Can this be radiated? But we also use the tools of interventional radiology to understand whether or not these tumors could be cryoblated. And I've had yep. several cases yep. where these are isolated liver lesions that come back years after and we're able to uh, have the patient undergo cryoblation and we've, we've, you know, we've avoided chemotherapy, yeah. we've yeah. avoided radiation therapy, we've avoided surgical intervention. It's case by case, yeah, I agree, absolutely. right? Yeah, but I sure. mean, we oftentimes will refer our patients to our interventional colleagues at the Brigham and to address this question specifically. So the answer is yes, it's selective cases, yeah. but it, the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah, I know, yeah. I think cryoblation, radiofrequency radio ablation, and, and the radiologist will pick what best therapy to, exactly. to use depending upon where the where the spot is and, and how best and how Absolutely. safe to do it. Yeah. All right, quickly, before we wrap up, um, and I want to thank the audience today, 
Dr. Campos, what are you most excited about in the field of ovarian cancer, cancer right now? I'm excited about the fact that things are changing and that we're no longer committed to simply chemotherapy of carboplatin and taxol. As Dr. You know, Pano said, you know, we're molecularly profiling these tumors. We're learning which genes actually turn on a tumor. And there's a whole category of drugs that we're starting to utilize, that we have utilized, and really tailoring the therapy to the individual. I think we've been doing this for many years, yep. and I think what's the most exciting thing is that if you had asked us 10 years where we were and to know where we are today, it's so much more exciting today because there are so many resources, and people can have fruitful lives with ovarian cancer. Great. Panos? Uh, I, I agree with Sue. I mean, I think that we, we have to, to strive to get to individualized, personalized therapy in ovarian cancer, similarly to what other uh, cancer types are uh, is happening with other, other cancer types. I think I, I think what I I feel is an exciting field is that we are starting to understand better now platinum and PARP inhibitor resistance and trying to find approaches to overcome this. This is something that I've been also involved in my laboratory efforts to try and understand this. So I think we live in, in, in exciting times in ovarian cancer research. A lot of novel drugs uh, that, that are being developed, and uh, I, think that, uh, there, I think that there is a bright future for, for our patients and uh, uh, to, to fight this, uh, this difficult disease. Yeah, and I'm certainly really excited about you know, different combinations of therapies because mm -hmm. we know and understand the genetic and genomic complexity of ovarian cancer. Sue talked about antiangiogenesis agents. Panos talked about PARP inhibitors, immunotherapy drugs. Well, you know what? We're going to start to combine these therapies right. together um, because sometimes one drug just doesn't work by itself. And, and it only makes sense that we combine these therapies because they really will tackle um, different innate problems in the cancer that really drive this tumor along. So um, I want to thank everyone in the audience. Dr. Sue Campos, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Panos Constantinopoulos, um, and a good day to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Ursula Madalonis, Dr. Susanna Campos, and Dr. Panos Constantinopoulos of the Gynecologic Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.